just from the get-go, I've, I've been praying about this particularly because, uh, man, this week, you would hope that kind of preparing for something like this, and it's kind of on your heart and on your mind, and you're thinking about what God has to say, but this week has been really cr- crummy, uh, really hard, uh, really uh, intense for me and my family, and so, uh, I mean, my, my, uh, some really close friends of ours, we were, uh, they were in our living room early this morning, uh, their marriage is falling apart, and we're praying for them and loving them, and I, they don't know, they, they're, they're on the, on the brink, and uh, my f- grandfather got a call on my way uh, to work yesterday. My grandfather's got put into hospice care, and so he's given a few days uh, left to live. And uh, I love my grandfather. He's 91 years old. And uh, my just craziness, uh, my wife is driving my car under some construction on a bridge, and they're stripping the paint off the, the street, uh, the, the, the things with uh, what I've come to find out now is military-grade air line uh, remover paint remover and it flies off the bridge and lands on my car and eats all the paint off my my 2014 car i was like oh my gosh are you kidding me so i've been on the phone with TechStot, which if any of you work for TechStot, then forgive me but uh it's not a pleasant experience you know trying to trying to track that stuff down and so hours spent there and all sorts of craziness with just families. I've been trying to counsel people at our church. So, so I come in and, and, and I've been praying this and I said, God, God I, don't, I don't know if I have what it takes to be in front of men and offer them anything because I'm tired. And I was walking over here and, and God just kept saying, I know you're tired, but there's hope. And there's, there's a hopefulness that's rising in me. And the reason I'm hopeful is not because I'm going to be able to impress you. The reason I'm hopeful is because I really believe that the Word of God is living and active and effectual to change lives. And so my hope is not based in my ability or giftedness to come and, and impress you or wow you. My hope is built and based in the fact that God's Word is living and active and can change hearts. And so that's my hope for us is that we sit in here and we would hear uh, the word of God open and it would actually do a work in our hearts and lives. Uh, and in a room this size with this many guys, there's probably some guys in here that, if we're honest, dragged in and need some encouragement to continue to endure. Uh, you know, things at work or things at home or things in life are going crazy and you just, you need hope to continue to keep walking uh, and if we're honest too, there's probably guys in here that is, uh, as we reflect on this afternoon or this past week, uh, have been tangled up in sin. Uh, the roots of sin have, have kind of grabbed us. And, and honestly, what we need to, tonight and over the next uh, day is we need God's kindness because the Word of God tells us that His kindness leads us to repentance. And maybe over this course of this time, God's Word would be a mirror to your soul that you'd begin to see some of that stuff and that God would be kind to you to not let you continue to, to move forward in your sin. But maybe there's a guy that you talk to and you say, man, I, can we talk? I, I, I got some things I need to, I, I haven't told anybody this. So maybe that's where you are. And, and so what, as I was praying through what we could do is, is um, one of my favorite books in the Bible is Ephesians. And I know like having a favorite book is kind of like having a favorite kid. You're like, you're not really supposed to, but I kind of do. And so I love Ephesians and uh, God has used it in really cool ways in my life. And so uh, I wanted to spend some time working through Ephesians. We've only got a couple sessions uh, and, it's, and it's six chapters. So we won't be able to touch all of them and get through all of them, but at least we'll get uh, to, to move through it uh, a little bit at a time. And so uh, we'll be in Ephesians 1 tonight and then we'll uh, we'll jump into some other sections there um, as we move forward but 
uh, we'll, uh, we'll jump in. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. While you're opening them, I, uh, you know, I was, uh, I don't know why I was doing this. Apparently I had nothing better to do, but I was actually reading an article about the San Diego chicken. Uh, I don't know if any of you have, have ever heard of the San Diego chicken or if you know the San Diego chicken, but apparently uh, the little known fact about the San Diego chicken is it's the first costume, kind of costume uh, mascot uh, of any professional sports franchise. And so uh, it's been around for 40 years, the, the San Diego chicken, and it's only been one guy. His name is Ted Ganousis, uh, and he actually started in 1974 was when he was in college. Uh, he, he went and took on the, the costume and the persona of the San Diego chicken and has been ever since uh, changed. And it's actually changed the, the landscape of sports. He was, uh, he was voted in the top 100 most influential sports figures by Sporting News Magazine ever. I'm like, I could probably name a couple that would be a little bit more influential, but for whatever reason, uh, Ted was named as one of the most influential sports uh, figures uh, of the last hundred years, and so this guy uh, has been doing this for 40 years. He's just uh, a shade under 60 years old and has been doing this his whole life, his whole career. He's been in like 40 different countries on multiple TV shows and talk shows and, and all sorts of things, but this is what caught my attention when I was reading this article. Uh, they were interviewing this guy named Ted about this, this career, and he said, you know, I discovered an untapped personality in that suit. It was like, now I have freedom. Now I'm no longer Ted. But if you're not careful, you can lose yourself in that suit. I have plenty of chicken stories. I'm afraid I don't have any Ted stories. And I was reading that, and it seems like this kind of silly thing, but, but that phrase at the end there, he says, I've got plenty of chicken stories. I don't have any Ted stories that I've lost myself in this identity, that I've worn the mask so long that I've sort of absorbed the identity of the San Diego chicken. He's no longer Ted. Now he's just known as this. And so when he takes off the mask, nobody knows him. Nobody wants pictures with him. Nobody's asking him to go travel as Ted. They only ask him to travel as the chicken. That's, that's how he wants to be known, and that's how people want to know him, and that's how he's received applause and, a, and acclaim. And I was thinking about that and just the, this idea that so many of us, once we begin to find something that people will applaud in our lives, something that people will take notice of us, something that people will find, hey, there's something there I want to respect or value, I want to show forth. We all wear these different types of masks. So this is the thing that's going to get me recognized. This is the thing that's going to be my niche or my unique contribution. And all of a sudden, we begin to lose ourselves in that identity. And we find ourselves stuck there. And there's this fear in us that if we take off the mask and show people who we really are, then they're like, oh, no, 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 go ahead and put the mask back on. We want you, we like you more like that. And so there has, there's this growing uh, thing in us that we don't even know who we really are. And we, so we lose our identity in these things, whether it's our jobs or uh, our, our careers or our athletic prowess or whatever it is that we find true and ultimate value in. Uh, and so I was thinking through this, this the idea that we... Um, we all base our identity on, on something. And most of the stuff we based our identity on, it, it's fleeting stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, I pastor a church in Austin and I get to talk with lots of people about different things. And, uh, and lots of times, uh, the, the places, those kind of moments in life when really hard stuff's happening are usually the times in life when guys are going, man, I don't even know who I am. But when, when somebody loses their job, they question their identity. Because we're, we're kind of identified by what we do. 
So guys are like, hey, how you doing? I mean, I sat at dinner with some of the guys, and I'm like, hey, how do you do? And, and, and I'm wanting to know, hey, what do you do for a living? And tell me about that. Why? Because that tells me something about their identity. Right? When I'm sitting on a plane or something, and somebody asks me what I do, and I say a pastor, it's the easiest way to shut down the conversation and take a nap, because people are like, okay, I'm good. Uh, right? Because they, they begin to, they think about all the things that that means in their mind. They, they are identifying you with your career. So when you lose your job or when you retire, all these questions start coming up about who am I? And when guys go through divorce, all these questions start becoming up because they've always identified I am a married guy with this particular spouse and that's who I am. When, when, when the college uh, guy goes off to college, the high school athlete, uh, saw a couple of athletes in here, uh, high school guys, we probably have, have all known this guy, stud, star in high school, goes on to college and is no longer the star anymore, begins to question, who am I? I mean, people aren't taking notice of me anymore. People aren't throwing me parties and accolades and applauding. Who, who am I? And so we ask all of these questions and we, we try to find our identity in things and all of these things, they, they're fleeting things. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think this goes, it, it's not just true among guys. I think it starts way back when. So my, my wife and I, we've got three little boys, nine, seven, and four, and they're starting the, the growing up process. And my oldest is, uh, is beginning to, to, to grow into that, like, man, you know, man stuff and, and that kind of thing. And so uh, I, I'm trying to think back of, like, me at nine years old. It's a frightening thought. Uh, and so I'm trying to, to help him grow. And, and I can remember there was a moment at which in... In elementary school, you know, in elementary school, all, all the kids are friends. They're all going to each other's birthday parties. They're all hanging out together. But there was a point at time in, in my growth that it was pretty much the first day of middle school. And, I, and it seems to me like the first day of middle school, something changed in the social economy of, of, of my friends. Uh, and here's what started happening is that all of a sudden values started getting put on people and, and, and what was one group of people and one group of friends all of a sudden started becoming lots of different groups of people and lots of different groups of friends. And at least in my weird little junior high, uh, what was happening was this, is that the smartest and the prettiest and the most handsome and the most athletic were over here and it was almost as if there was this line of from from this group all the way down and you kind of you kind of went all the way down to the least athletic and the least beautiful and the least smart down on this end of the line and what was happening and, and we've seen this happen is that value is attached to to the folks on this side and devalue on this side and so so much of my energy in junior high and middle school and, and in high school and even into college and young adulthood is this idea that so much energy was based on me trying to move up the chain socially trying to move up in value and saying I want to be associated with this side and and what happens is this is that we look down on these people so we grow in our arrogance and pride and we look up to these people and we start seeing that there is shame because we're not like those people And, and I think in junior high we see it and we go oh that's kind of sad but I don't think it's all that different now that we're all grown up it's just the value things have changed it's just now it's what kind of car do I drive? What kind of neighborhood do I live in? What's my, what's my portfolio look like? What kind of things do I have? What kind of things do I own? What kind of, uh, and, and so we acquire these things and we show, show ourselves to be valuable by our stuff. And we look down on the people that don't have it. We wouldn't say that. None of us would say that, but we sort of live that way. And I don't know if you're like, like me in this, and, and, and it's the same thing with... Uh, um, you know, when we ask people, hey, what is it that you do for a living? 
And this is, you can judge me. Go ahead. Uh, it's, it, I'm, I'm allowing you to do that. It's just judgeworthy. Is when you ask somebody, hey, what do you do? And they tell you, all of a sudden in your mind, you put them on the line. You put them somewhere on the line. Oh, oh I'm a doctor. I'm an anesthesiologist. Oh, cool. You're over here. I'm a whatever. You know, I don't want to say whatever that is. But in our minds, we say, okay, well, I'm, I'm right here. You're over here. And you're over here. And so we, we kind of do that game. And we kind of look down on these people and look up to those people. And let me just tell you that this is an absolute misunderstanding of reality. This is not true. You know what Jesus did? You know what Jesus did to absolutely blow up this idea? Is he was born the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, the who Colossians says he created all things, all things ex- exist by him and for him. He shows up and guess where he shows up in the line? The least the quietest, the smallest. And what Jesus says is the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he blows this thing up and the people on this side of the line are saying, I don't get this, I don't understand this. You're supposed to be down there. Why are you trying to come up here and get up on all in our stuff? Just stay down there where you belong. And he goes, no, there is no line. Because, because that's not where you find value and identity. It's like, I don't care what you have. Rich or poor, both are sinners in need of grace and so jesus blows up this concept and says it's not what you have it's not what you know but the there is a need that you have if you are apart from christ and so we find ourselves in this place in ephesians chapter one i love this quote by tim keller he's an author and pastor up in new york he says it like this he says sin is building your identity, finding your greatest meaning, significance, and security on something besides God. Our security, our priorities, our sense of worth and uniqueness, all the things we call identity should be based on what God has done for us and in us. I love that last phrase. He's, he's talking about something that's done in us. And so here in Ephesians chapter 1, I, I wanted to read just this kind of big section right here from uh, verse 3 to verse 14. And, and I'm going to ask you to do something with me. I don't know what version uh, of the Bible that you have, but each version may be a little bit different. I want you to count the number of times you see the word in, the phrase either in him or in love or in Christ. So I'm just going to read it and you gotta, you kind of follow along and try to count how many times you see it. Uh, I know how many times I got it in, in mind, but I want to see if, if maybe your version might be a little bit different. So let me read this out loud to us and y'all follow along from verse 3 of Ephesians 1. It says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All right, how many did we get? Seven? Eight? Nine? All right. Is that about it? Is that about it? You had how many? Eight? Eight? All right. I counted 11, so maybe I just, I'm an Aggie, so I don't know. I kind of, maybe I, not sure what the story there is. Uh, but the idea is this, is Paul obviously is saying something. I mean, Paul obviously is, is repeating himself at least seven times, maybe 11 times, uh, depending on which version you have. There's something going on that he is talking to these, these Ephesian believers and he's saying, you are in Christ. You are in him. There is an identity when you're in versus when you're out, right? Just the idea of being in something means that there's belonging and acceptance. You're in the club. You're in the school. You are in that particular group, right? You're not on the outside looking in, but you're on the inside. So something's happening in the life of the Ephesians, and he's reminding them, you are in Christ. Multiple times he says it, um, I was, I was trying to just jot them down. It says, uh, you're blessed in Christ. He chose us in him. In love, he predestined for adoption. In him, we have redemption through blood. All things will be united in him. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. In him, you're sealed with the Spirit. So obviously, he's trying to communicate something about our position in Christ. Because our position is talking about our identity, about who we are. And who we are determines what we do. And so multiple times we see this phrase, and I wanted to just take a couple places, just three of them. I'm not going to do all seven or eleven, uh, but just a couple of them to begin to process our identity in Christ. The first one I saw uh, was in verse four and five. It says, uh, "He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before us, before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons." I love this, this little phrase, verse 4. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. I mean, that one verse we could spend a lot of time on, but just this idea that God chose us to be in Him. So uh, I coach uh, baseball and t-ball, and we were doing, uh, trying to just have fun with the boys. They were getting real serious about seven-year-old baseball as if this is like the world series i'm like boys we just need to have some fun so i said hey we're gonna play some kickball yeah you know so they go crazy and so uh i run off to get the kickball and the assistant coach was gonna line them up and and he picked two captains and he was gonna have them you know pick pick teams uh and i hated that when i was in junior high because i was over here on the line going no one's gonna pick me you know and so i was always uh i was always at the last and you're trying to like look you know, tough and stuff, like maybe somebody will pick me, uh, and so that's me, and so they start picking, uh, and we get down to like the last couple, and it was just breaking my heart, I'm like, somebody's gonna be the last one, uh, and so I'm like, okay, we can't do this, I'm like, okay, you three on that side, you three on that side, let's go, uh, but, but this idea that there is a God who has created all things, who looks out on the crowds, and he chooses, he says, I want you on my team, I'm calling your name and I'm getting you and I want you. I'm choosing you. I'm choosing you to be in Christ. And the beauty of this is this little phrase that says, He chose us in Him when? What was it? Before creation. 
Why is that significant? Because before you did anything wrong, before you did anything right, God chose you. So what does that say about your, your ability to do so many good things that you somehow impress God enough for him to choose you onto the team? So you don't have to buff up to, to, to show how strong you are spiritually for God to say, oh yeah, that guy, he makes it, he makes the cut. He's good enough. I'm gonna pull him onto my team and maybe he can actually do something for me. No, before you did anything good, before you made one mistake, before God opened his mouth and light came out at 186,000 miles per second at the speed of light, that's the power of creation. Just God says, let there be light and there is light. Before on any of that, he knew your name and he chose you to be on his team. And he says, he's chosen us in him. And what has he chosen us for? Watch this, this even gets more profound. Verse five, he's chosen us for adoption as sons. He's chosen us as adopt, for adoption as sons. And so the profundity of this is this idea that you and I, according to the Bible, were enemies of God, Right? Uh, you and I, in our sin, rebelled against God. We were enemies of God. But yet, in His grace, uh, if, if nothing else, God looks down on His enemies and says, you know what? I'm such a gracious, kind God. I'm going to forgive their iniquity and their sin and their rebellion, and I'm going to forgive my enemies. Like, that's a huge thing. Like, think of somebody that has wronged you. Somebody that has just made you so angry. Your enemy, your arch rival, Right? For you to say, well, I'm going to forgive them and really mean it. That's a big deal. But God doesn't stop with simply forgiving us. He forgives his great enemies. And then what does he do? He calls them into his house. And he, and he makes a room for them. And he gets a table out of the, uh, or a plate out of the cupboard. And he puts it on the table. Now you've got a spot at the table. You're in his family. He's called you and adopted you and made you his own and that is such a huge, gracious act that in him, he is our father and we are his sons. Uh, I don't know if, if, if you guys are familiar with the name George Foreman. George Foreman, depending on your age, you either know him as a boxer or his grill. Uh, I'm not sure which one you'll know him as. But George Foreman has a lot of kids, uh, tons of kids. And I don't know if you know the names of George's kids. They're pretty simple to remember. It's George Jr., George III, George IV, George V, George VI, and then he had a daughter named her Georgetta. Uh, and so he, he wasn't real creative with the names, but, you know, he kind of had a, had a theme going, and he stuck with the theme, at least. Um, and I, I remember thinking to myself, like, man, how, like, how into yourself do you have to be to name every kid your name? Or is it just that you can't remember getting hit in the head too many times? It's like, George! And so they all come running, or what's the story? And so I was reading this deal uh, about, about this particular deal and, and, and I felt uh, so convicted by judging him for this. And he says, you know, as a, as a kid, I never knew my dad. So when I named my kids, I never wanted them to forget who their daddy was. I was like, oh, dang, that's pretty good now. That's good, George. I like that. I never wanted them to forget. And so I put my name on them. They are my kids they are my sons and my daughters and they will know it because of my name is on them and God you are his enemy and he forgave you and if nothing else that is in, that is eternal kindness but he doesn't stop there and he grabs you and he pulls you in and he gives you his 
son's blood and says, you are a part of my family now. I'm your dad and you're my son. So in Christ, we have adoption. We are in him. That is our identity. Secondly, we see this in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. So in him, we have adoption. In him, we have redemption. And so we think of the word redemption, we think kind of a theological thing. We could probably give a a good definition of what redemption means. But in Ephesus, the word redemption in, in the original language was not a theological word. It was a business word. It was a word used in the marketplace. And so in Ephesus, in this ancient city, uh, it was the fourth largest city in the world at the time. There's about uh, a quarter of a million people there. Uh, There was this, right in the middle of the city, there was this gigantic open air market. It was about two football fields side by side. And all up and down were these aisles. You could go buy spices, you could go buy uh, clothing, and you could go to this one section and you could buy people. Because there was this giant slave trade market in Ephesus. And so what would happen is the word redeemed was this idea that you could walk down the street and you could buy your spices and you go over to the slave trade section and you could redeem, you could purchase a slave. And so when Paul is using this word, he's using a business phrase. He's saying, you know, when you go down to the market, you know that giant market that you go down to and you, and you see people redeeming uh, the slaves and bring them into the house? You have been purchased. You were a slave and you've been purchased. You've been bought. You've been brought down from the stage and into this household. And the the beautiful thing about this is that he says something powerful here because you can imagine they're thinking, whoa, so you're saying that idea of purchase, that's that's us. And he's like, yes. And they're saying, so like I can go down there I can go, I see the people on the stage and I pull out my wallet and I don't know how, many, how much a slave would cost, but so I pay 10 drachma or whatever it is and I buy a person. They're like, yes. And he's like, guess what? You know what it cost God to purchase you? He didn't pull out his wallet and put down cash. You know what he did? He opened heaven's gates and he sent his son and the price of your redemption was the blood of his son. The price of your purchase, it says this right here, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And, and we, we wallow around thinking, I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I'm valuable. See, I look at the people on the line and I'm better than them, but I'm not as good as them. And, and does anybody love me? Does anybody care? Does God even know? And he says, do I know? Do I care? Are you kidding me? I've purchased, I've redeemed you at the price that is absolutely the most precious thing that I could possibly spend. I've spent it on you and I've purchased you and I've redeemed you. You are a part of my family. You've been adopted and you've been purchased. The third thing, the third place, we are adopted. So in Christ, we are adopted. In Christ, we are redeemed. Down uh, towards the end of that little section in verse 13, it says this, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in him, you are sealed. There is a seal that happens when you have an identity in Christ. And you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. So when a slave would be purchased, they would come off the, the stage or, or the, the platform and they would be brought into a particular family. And the family had a way of identifying its property most of the time it was by a brand or a tattoo and they would place it on the arm of this this person and this person would become the property of that family they would brand it or tattoo it in so that they they would always know whose person that was 
And so that's the word seal here, is this idea that you've been sealed with something. You, you ever seen the movie uh, Gladiator? Anybody Gladiator? Maximus? Remember, uh, remember there's a scene in there where you see uh, some letters written on Maximus's arm. Um, I don't know if you remember what they are. Any huge fans? SPQR is written on his arm. It was written on every Roman soldier. Uh, the, the phrase in Latin means senatus populesque Romanus. Uh, and in Latin it means senate and the people of Rome. And so what was happening was they would take every Roman soldier and they would tattoo him SPQR so when that they would raise their arm in battle they would always remember for who they are fighting to whom they belong. To the senate and the people of Rome these soldiers belonged. And so that's the picture here is that there is a seal on the Roman soldier. There was a seal on the slave. It was a tattoo or a brand to remind them of who they belong. And what, is, what does Paul say here? He says, God has redeemed you with the blood of his son and he has sealed you. He has not sealed you with the tattoo. He's not sealed you with the brand. He has sealed you with the spirit of God. The eternal third member person of the trinity is the promise is the seal of ownership and the good news is this you can you can eventually get rid of a tattoo with some sort of sandblast kind of thing but you don't get to get rid of the spirit of god because the spirit is living and active and the spirit serves as the seal guaranteeing what is to come and i love this it says that because of that we have an inheritance why because we're adopted we're his kids and there's a promise of that it says this in Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. It says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So that's our identity. Our identity is we've been adopted, we've been purchased, we've been sealed. And because of that, we are heirs with Christ. And the inheritance is ours to come. And so we spend our energies and our efforts trying to make ourselves look important, trying to make ourselves move up on the line, trying to associate with winners and disassociate from lo losers. That's why when the Aggies win, I always say we win, and then to lose, I say they lost, right? I want to associate with us when we win and disassociate when we lose. That's kind of our deal. And so what we do is we try so much of our energy and efforts to move this way on the line and Jesus comes and says, look, man, you can spend your entire life trying to identify and find value in identity. All of those things that you're building your life on are absolutely fleeting. Like this, they'll be gone. There's something that if you build your life on, that if you are in Christ, regardless of job title, regardless of income, regardless of those things, you are sealed, you are redeemed, you are adopted because it's not based on you because before the foundations of the world this, is ha this has happened. Regardless of what you've done, you are sealed to the end. Man, that's great news for us. And so what that does for us is it frees us up. So I'll finish with this. But this idea is here we are on this line and so much of our energy is just trying to move a little bit. What happens is when we begin to realize that we are in Christ we are filled to the measure of the fullness of God we have all that we could ask or imagine in Christ we have the inheritance which is the world you say ah oh, man I'm looking forward to that inheritance yeah 
in Christ, you are heirs with Christ, and the, the, the thing that Christ inherits is everything. So that's pretty good. But yet we spend our lives trying to get a little bit more for ourselves while everything is waiting for us. And so we argue and we fight and we grumble. And when we move down the line, we get upset with ourselves. So we do everything to move up the line. And Jesus says, look, the line isn't real. So what happens when we begin to realize who we are in Christ is we can step back from the line. And now we're actually freed up to love people well and to not use people to try to move ourselves up. So much of our energy is, I want to associate with this person so that I can get this thing. I want to sort of network so maybe I can move up in my, my job. And that's fine, that's great. But if that is my identity, man, it's fleeting. It really is. But if we're in Christ, we get to step back from the line and go, you know what? I can now use my gifts. I can use my passions. I can use my skills to love people well because I'm filled to the measure with the fullness of God. I'm in Christ. I don't have to worry about that. And so now we can actually love. We read the scriptures and it says, yeah, you're supposed to love people, but we find it so difficult to actually do that because we're so caught up in people not loving us. We're so caught up in trying to to impress people. But man, when we're filled up, we get to step back and go, God, how would you use me to love people? And sometimes he's gonna call you to love the people down there and you say, okay, that's fine. I'll go right over here and I'll love the least of these. Does that make me a worse person? No, because I'm filled with the measure of the fullness of God. I'm sealed. I'm redeemed. I'm a son of God. I'll go over here. And sometimes he's going to call you over here. And maybe you don't like these people. Maybe you're more comfortable with those people. And he'd say, hey, I want you to go over here and hang out with these people. And you're like, I don't know if I want to. And he's like, hey, is that your identity? No, your identity is in Christ. Would you go love those people I called you to love? Would you serve those people I called you to serve? And you say, yeah. Because my identity is not in the line. My identity is in you. And so when we're freed up from that, man, it opens up a world for us to actually live out that which God has called us to do. Man, that's good news. That's good news for us. So that's my hope is that as we process through, we begin to see God, your gospel is, it's not some sort of theological thing out there that doesn't really impact real life. It is true and it is good and it sets us free. And so we want to press into that. It has real meaning for our real relationships and our real work environments. And so, Lord, would you be gracious to show us how it is you can lead us in truth in the gospel because we have been adopted by your love, we've been redeemed by your blood, and we've been sealed by your spirit. God, therefore, let us live in that reality. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. Father, would you be so kind as to lead us in an understanding of who we are in you. And Lord, we, we have spent so much time and energy in, in trying to impress, trying to gain favor with other people, trying to show how worthy we are through all the different ways that we wear masks. But God, when we take off our mask, we don't have to worry that you're gonna turn away from us, God, because you know us before the foundations of the world and you love us the same. So Lord, Lord thank you, thank you for that. Thank you for adopting us and bringing us in when we were enemies. Thanks for redeeming and purchasing us at the cost of your blood. God, and thank you for sealing us that there is security now in knowing you and that there is a coming day when we will look and see you face to face and our praise and our faith will be made sight. And Lord, we look forward to that day and we long for it. But until then, God, give us the faith to continue to walk, to love people, to use the gifts that you've given us. Uh, to do that. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen.